have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Square footage, meaning when you buy a home, you got 3,000 square feet, you got 1,000 square feet, whatever. That is the most expensive space we buy. Cubic feet, that's where we start to use our vertical space, is some of the least expensive that we have. Yet, that's probably one of the most underutilized areas in our homes. Do you have a question about your home, inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. We're here weekends at this time. Ken's here to answer the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you have a question, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email questions to the website, kenthecontractor.com. Our home for us is a place that we find a great deal of rest and we find that we can kick back and we don't have to worry about things. Unfortunately, the way society is today in so many parts of the world, we are worrying a little more about home security. And frequently we're saying every time I need to do something, it's going to cost hundreds or it's going to cost thousands of dollars. Not so when it comes to security. So let's discuss a little bit about making your home more secure but doing it on a budget because you're going to be surprised at some of the things I tell you that you may be doing already on your own, but if you're not, things that you can easily do that won't cost you a dime and others that will cost you just a few dollars, but you're going to feel more secure in the home because the home will indeed be much more secure. And improving safety isn't something that that we have to deal with on a regular basis. So these items are not always something we're conscious of. But first and foremost, I want to suggest to you that you consider just getting rid of uh, clutter that's adjacent to the house, to cutting the shrubs and the trees back. If you can create a way for somebody to access a window, doors are not usually an issue, but to access a window and be concealed, folks, you have simply given a thief, a burglar, somebody that wants to get in your house an opportunity to take all the time they need because nobody can see them. It's also good to keep these shrubs cut back from the home for maintenance purposes. You don't have limbs and leaves and high winds blowing up against the house, damaging the siding, the paint job, whatever your exterior may be, and creating issues at a later date. So not only for home maintenance and just for a good outward appearance, but also for your own safety and security, keep all of your trees and shrubs cut back so that the windows are visible from the outside. Other people can see, and you're not harboring somebody. You're not giving them a safe haven where they can gain access into your home. Now, that's something that we typically think about or don't think about, I shouldn't say, but we do our own yard work, and we think about cutting and trimming and hedging, but we don't necessarily think about it from a safety standpoint. Easy to do. One of the other items that we never think about, some of us have lived in our homes 10, 15, 20 years and have probably never changed the lock on the door. You don't necessarily have to change the lock, but you can, with many of the lock sets that are available and in place, have them rekeyed. So if you think about over the years, you live in an environment where it may have changed the day you're given keys to maintenance people, former neighbors, uh, school friends and buddies, you never know where those end up. And especially if you had a tag on them, I'm always reluctant to tag a key if I loan somebody a key because I don't want them identifying an address if the key is lost. I don't want a name on there. I will simply give them the key and say, okay, 
you know, this is to my house. You do what you need to and give the key back to me. These are obviously trusted people. But if you've been giving keys out with names or tags on them at some point that identifies the location, you might want to think about either changing that lock or bringing a locksmith in and rekeying all of your exterior locks. And while you're at it, if you don't have deadbolts, one of the best things you can do, you start spending a little bit of money, but add a deadbolt. Very, very effective to eliminate the door as a point of entry on the house to make it more secure. And most thieves, based on statistics that come out from law enforcement, are pretty lazy. The point of entry is going to be the door or it's going to be the window. Every now and then you'll find somebody trying to get down the chimney. Those are the ones you hear about on the radio and see on the TV with their feet stuck up in the air and the fire department rescuing them. But that's not what I'm talking about. Think about these little things that you've never paid any attention to. Deadbolts are very, very effective when they're done right, properly installed, and you're not giving the key to everybody up and down the road. Also, one other area that we pay no attention to in our homes that if we had to replace or repair one probably would cost us about $5 or less, that's the locks on our windows. As I said, thieves are pretty lazy. They're going to look for something that's easy access. Doors without deadbolts, you'll be surprised. You can take your driver's license if it's in plastic. You can take a credit card. You probably can open your lock on your door that easily. That would be scary. If you go do it, when we get through with this segment, you take a, a moment and you figure that out. If you can open it, so can somebody else that easily. But window locks also need to be kept in good repair. One item that I've experienced, I've gone through houses with people and, and we've done some audits, not financial, but we've looked at this from a security standpoint, is they thought they had the window lock engaged when, in fact, the upper sash was not pushed up all the way. The lock mechanism on the lower sash was closed. It looked locked, but it had not engaged that upper sash. You need to be certain that when you're locking windows, if you want to leave your home secure, that those locking mechanisms, one, work, and two, that they are properly engaged. Another area that's an easy point of entry for somebody that wants to break into your home is a sliding glass door. And there are several devices that have been around for a long time. They've been enhanced. They've been modified a little bit. These are pins that you drill, and and it goes in between the two door, the vertical styles on those, so that they are locked. Also, there are drop bars that you can attach that go in at a midpoint and at the bottom. You're talking about $10 or less in most cases, and almost all of the devices I'm familiar with are something that homeowners can install on their own on a sliding glass door. Very, very easy point of entry, sliding glass doors in most cases. Also, as these exterior floodlights or even the wall lights at your front and rear door happen to age, you will find they need replacing you're going to find so many varieties available today that have motion sensors in them. doesn't run up the electric bill. When somebody shows up in and around the front door or in and around the floodlight zone area, these lights come on. They automatically cycle off. They can be used in different fashion. They are very inexpensive. Use the same lamps that you're accustomed to using. will offer the same degree or, in some cases, more illumination that you have. And, again, for many of you, this is something you can do yourself. Just be sure the power is turned off at the breaker. Same wires go back on that you had previously. Very easy to install. I would highly recommend it. Probably starting at around $20, you can go on up to $100 or more on floodlights. Depends on the variety, the type, and the flexibility that you're looking for. Some of you have talked to me and said, well, you know, I'd like to have a security system, but I really can't afford the cost of putting one in. There are portable security alarms that will give you, will make you feel better about staying in the house especially if you're there by yourself and you have some concerns where you are. They're battery-operated. You can move them from room to room. Uh, you can set them for different types of chimes, audible alarms, 
and they will travel with you. I've had people talk to me and say, look, I travel. I spend a lot of time in hotels. I wish I had something. These portable devices can be picked up at many electronic stores. Some of the big box stores will have them as well. They operate on 9-volt batteries. Usually they're going to cost someone in the neighborhood of about $25 or less, and they last for years and years and years. So you don't have to go out and spend $2,000 to put in a massive security system. These are little things, very inexpensive items that you can do. One last item I have to bring to your attention. If you're throwing anything away with personal data on it, folks, shame on you. If you're not shredding that information before it hits the trash can or the, or the dumpster, wherever it goes, you are inviting identity theft. And today that is big time. So when we talk about security, we think about our home. We don't always think about the personal things that leave our house and go outside. There are people, you may not, but there are people that spend their life in the dumpsters and the trash cans looking for this and then sell it. Be sure you've got a crosscut shredder. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He is here weekends at this time to answer questions about your home inside or out, answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. Coming up in minutes on our green building segment, uh, Ken's going to be talking about a facet of green building, and also he'll be answering your questions. That's all coming up this hour. I'm Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You have a question about your home inside or out, you can email questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com, or you can also dial in and join us. You can reach Ken anytime at 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook, Ken the Contractor, and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And let's go to the phones right now. And joining us next is Nancy. She listens to our program on WEEU in Reading. Hi, Nancy. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi, Ken. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, good. I appreciate your call. Good to hear from you. How can we help you today? Okay, there was an article in the paper recently about attic fall that is stapled under the roof rafters on top of your insulation to help decrease um, the loss of heat in your attic and then, of course, through your uh, ceiling floor. What is your opinion of that? That has come on big time in the last few years across the country, especially up and down the East Coast. And I would tell you that I've recommended it to others and I would recommend it to you. It's been, it has been beneficial in the, the, the first couple of years of it. I don't think they did one, a good marketing job, but two, I'm not sure that the, the earlier systems were what they are today. Basically, this is a foil system and you've touched on that that attaches to the bottom side of the top cord of your trusses. And I want to explain this, not only for your benefit, I think you know this, but for those listening to us. And what it does is prevent the heat from building up inside the attic space and then working against the ceiling inside your condition space. So essentially you have a much cooler in the summertime or warmer in the wintertime attic area, which is beneficial in terms of energy cost. Most of us have used aluminum foil in cooking, whether it's in our kitchen, campfires, wherever the case may be. And we understand that aluminum foil may hold in heat it may prevent heat. In some cases, we put it on windows from getting in. The effect is very much the same. So for that reason, it's been successful. It's highly marketed today. There are more and more companies installing this. There are companies, Nancy, that will also, before you buy, will run the numbers based on your current energy cost, the cost of installing the foil, and then give you a payback period. I've known one company that is a, a national uh, franchise company that will actually give you some minimum guarantees that you will be saving on your operating costs. So if you're going to consider this, I'd suggest you get with one of those that will put these things in writing. Now, they're not going to tell you in that guarantee that we we promise you're going to save X 
they're going to tell you why. They're going to tell you a lesser amount than their numbers actually would reveal to them because there can be variables. But if you're going to do this, I'd get at least three quotes, and I'd be talking to people that are experienced at it, that have been doing it for several years, not somebody that's just started out, and then one of the companies that can provide you with energy cost savings so that you can accurately determine you're going to spend $1,000 to install this, but you can expect to pay, and I'm pulling these numbers out of the air, but you can expect to save, let's say, $300 a year, $400 a year, whatever it is in energy cost, so that you've got a quick payback. It is, and it can be, depending on how we live in our homes, a fairly quick payback period. So the bottom line is I support the product. Okay. I have R19 right now, and I don't know. This was put in quite a few years ago. Uh, so, and it's, what, what's, what does the six and a quarter mean? It's six and a quarter inches thick? Yeah, it should be the thickness that's there, but an R19 for attic insulation is well below any current code up and down the East Coast. Okay, and, like I said, it's been put in a long time ago. Yeah, and, and in its day, if that goes back to the 70s, for example, that was considered pretty good. When they started enforcing or requiring at least building codes in newer homes, R19 in much of the country was considered great. Because homes prior to that had no insulation in them at all. You know, in the right. 50s, 60s, even the early 70s, most of us didn't think much about insulation. And until we hit that oil crisis, then all of a sudden all bets were off because energy costs were very much on the forefront of our, our minds. But before that, we didn't think about insulating anything. So R19 was a good insulation for its day. In the part of the country you're living in, your, your building code likely requires at least an R38 if you were building a new home. Right. Well, the house was built in the 50s, and so, it, like you said, it didn't have any, any insulation in, and so we put it in, like, quite a few years ago. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll invest in putting uh, this foil up, and it just says uh, basically go over top of the insulation that's there and just staple it in the top, in the ceiling and the, and the uh, sides. I know you're very conscious about energy in your home because of some of your emails and your calls, which we certainly appreciate. One other thing that I'd suggest to you that I think we've talked about in the past, and if you're willing to spend this kind of money now on other insulation, you might want to add a little more to that and consult, uh, call an energy consultant locally. Uh, these are folks similar to home inspectors that can do some thermal imaging of your house and give you a report of where you're losing the greatest amount of energy, and they can make some recommendations of where your money's best spent for your particular type home. Okay. So if you're willing to spend a couple hundred dollars, and that's probably what you should be paying, no more than three, uh, it's going to give you a lot that you can work with going forward, even if this is a big part of the equation. And our ceilings are where we tend to lose the greatest amount of heat that we're creating in the winter, and we gain heat in the summer. So that might be a good scenario for you to consider. Should you go through the electric company? Would they be a good one or just, just find uh, independent? They're always a good source. Many power companies in the nation have people that will provide the service, and if they don't, they probably have two, three, or four companies they would recommend that they send out when you're looking for energy surveys. Nancy, we do appreciate your call. Thanks for joining us. Uh, while we're talking insulation, we've got an email here from Wilson in Knoxville, Tennessee. His insulation question is about foundation insulation. Yeah, Wilson is in the process of building a, uh, a a barn, not a barn, but a workshop, I guess, a 20 by 30 uh, shop. He says, we're ready to start digging out the soil to put in the footers. said, a friend of mine who works in construction is helping. He tells me we may want to consider installing insulation foam board inside the footer and under the slabs. Said, I'm not familiar with this. Why should I do this, and is it necessary? Thanks for the advice. Well, Wilson, uh, hopefully you'll appreciate what I have to say here. 
first off, you, you've got you've told me that you have a heated workshop area in your region. This may not be required by your building code, but if you're going to heat the space, you're investing energy costs month after month during your cooler months to heat it. First, I'm going to tell you in your location, you're somewhat marginal in the sense of extreme cold winters, ground freezing. And what I suggest is you check with your local code official, even if it is not required for a building inspection, ask them what the typical freeze depth is of the soil in your area. The reason we insulate footers or slabs has to do with keeping frozen ground from having that extreme cold work its way through footings, through stem walls, into the soil under our slab, freezing that, because when it freezes, it expands, and it can cause the slab to actually raise up. And you don't want that to happen. That is not a good situation. So check with your local code officials and determine, is is your freeze area a depth of only 4 to 6 inches in your extreme winters? They may tell you, no, it's 20. There are some areas that our listeners are in where they've got to be down below 2 feet because ground will freeze solid. And if the cold penetrates that stem wall at that point, it can freeze the soil underneath your floor slab and cause structural damage. That's the reason this fellow's talking to you about the insulation. So if your code official says, no, we really don't have an issue here in this area, then it's not going to serve any purpose for you to install it beyond what I've just described. If they tell you, yeah, it would be a good idea, the insulation board may cost you $9, $10 a sheet, take you a few hours to put it down. It's not a big investment. I'd put it in and protect my floor slab and my investment going forward. Wilson, thank you. We do appreciate your email. Don't forget, you have a couple different ways that you can get your questions to. Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, like Wilson, down there in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can email your questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com. You'll find a lot of useful home improvement information there. And right on the front page of the website, you'll see Ken's important points. And they deal with a lot of the topics that we get our questions most often about, from plumbing to siding, buying and selling your home, flooring, ventilation roofs, fencing, decks, that and much more. It's all available on the web right at Ken's website, kenthecontractor.com, or you can give us a call. You can always reach Ken at this number, 800-614-2975. That's 1-800-614-2975. Quick break and back with more right after this. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975 or email your question to kenthecontractor.com. We're going to uh, deal with a question involving wind turbines from our email in just a moment. But first, I'm going to deal with our green building segment right now, and this deals with appliances. It does. Building green does not always mean you have to go out and buy something new or involves putting an addition on your house or building a new home. In this particular case, we're going to talk about what you have that's existing in the home, and that has to do with your appliances. And, yes, appliances do have a green impact, and you do in terms of how you operate them and maintain them. Most of us think of nothing, absolutely nothing, about maintaining appliances at all to save energy or to be sure they're functioning properly. We just let them exist until they don't work, and we either replace them or we call the repair person to deal with it. But I want to give you a few tips that will help you save a few operating dollars from month to month and may preserve some food and create eliminate some other issues that you might have going down the road. Gaskets are items on our appliances from refrigerators to dishwashers and other areas, even our ovens, that do wear out over time. 
And I'd venture to say that none of you have ever looked at any of those gaskets to see if they're performing properly. On your refrigerator, clean that gasket, that seal around the outside. This is probably one of the areas that we add so much to our energy cost and don't realize it to be sure that we're not trying to condition the room while we're conditioning, cooling our food, or freezing what we have in the freezer compartment. Clean that gasket well, and then take something as thin as a dollar bill, or it can be any sheet of paper that you have. Close the door. If you can pull that piece of paper through... Chances are pretty good that you don't have the seal in that refrigerator or freezer that you need. A lot of them have mechanical latches that may need to be adjusted. Others, you may find that a door has become warped or the seal is now defective and needs to be replaced. And most hardware stores will sell replacement seals. Certainly appliance stores will for your given refrigerator. So this is one big area that you can be a friend to your pocketbook by paying attention to this from time to time. Do a little cleaning and check and see if that refrigerator seal is doing what it's supposed to. Also, when it comes to ranges and ovens, by keeping those cleaned, and I mean not using the electric oven over and over again, especially if you've got grease on the inside, if you keep it clean, it's going to be more energy efficient, it's going to cook faster, it's going to do what it's supposed to, and you're going to use less energy to make it operate. A dishwasher would be one other item for you that, uh, again, we never think about. I talked to you about the seal. You notice if that's bad because water leaks out of it around the door. But what you never notice is the fact that you may be washing the dishes through two cycles, putting them back in, saying they didn't get clean this time, maybe they weren't pre-rinsed, whatever, and you wash them a second time using more energy and more water to do that, when the problem really has been that the small holes that are inside the dishwasher where the water is dispersed along the dishes have clogged up, either because of hard water or debris that gets inside them. You can take something as simple and as local as a toothpick, an ice pick, open those holes up, and be sure that you have adequate water flow in all of them. And you might find that that older dishwasher is performing just great, and you're washing those dishes correctly now the first time around. Dryers are something I harp on constantly with folks because there are so many dryer fires across this country from coast to coast every single year. There are thousands, and there are people injured and people killed and homes destroyed. But your dryer is a source that you need to maintain on a periodic basis. Every two to six months, depending on how often you use it, you not only need to be sure that lint filter is clean every time you cycle that dryer, but you need to be sure that the exhaust vent is free of lint and that from the outside, that birds have not created a nest. I've seen this happen more times than a few. So you want to be sure that you have adequate airflow. This means the dryer uses less energy to run, whether it's gas or electric. It's still going to cycle in a shorter period of time, use less energy. And the big thing is you're going to avoid something very dangerous, and that is a fire. One last item, and this isn't as much an energy-saving item as something that can save you big dollars. It is if you have a leak and you don't notice it, but that's the, the hoses on your washing machine. Those really need to be replaced every several years. And if you're in a controlled uh, temperature environment, maybe you can go as long as five years, a little longer. If it sits out in a garage where those hoses are exposed to cold and hot temperatures from time to time, and especially if it's in a place where it receives a lot of UV sunlight and it can be the rubber hose itself can be broken down, you need to be replacing those every couple of years. Pay attention to them because if they crack, you could have thousands of dollars in damage when you're gone from the home with a leak that's created there. So these are some little items that can not only save you money monthly, save you some big dollars if you have an issue that's there, and it will help make these appliances last just a little bit longer for you. And speaking of green building, we've got a question, an email question, about using wind turbines. 
Yeah, and Alice in Lexington, Virginia sends this to us. Says, I live near a hotel that has wind turbines on the roof for power generation. These are units that move from side to side, not in the traditional windmill fashion. So they have several, which make me think that they must work. Well, that's probably a pretty good observation, Alice. I hope they do. Said, my husband and I have long considered wind power to save on energy since we live on a hilltop. Do these really work? And can you really cut back on energy costs from the power company? Uh, we're hoping you can help with our debate. Well, Alice, I hate being in the middle of a family feud, but I'm going to give you a couple of pointers, and you and your spouse will have to uh, kick these around and make your own decisions. But I will tell you that wind energy is something that's become very popular in certain parts of the country. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, it doesn't work so well here. If you're in an area that you don't have a decent average wind throughout the course of the year, then there's no reason to invest money in any of these. And you can go to various sites through that the federal government has that will tell you if you live in a wind-prone area, and it will give you the average speeds of the wind in that area. But, Alice, back to your question. Where you live, especially if you're on a hilltop in the part of Virginia that you live in, you probably have pretty decent sustained wind throughout the course of the year. And we're not talking about having to have 60-mile-an-hour winds, but if you've got two, three miles an hour, just enough to move these turbines, you can generate power. And that's something that I know you wanted to hear me say, so I'm telling you that. However, they work, but they're going to require engineering to determine the size and the number that's needed and the amount of power that you're looking to to produce. So just because you put one up, don't think that you're off the grid and all of a sudden everything you need for your house is taken care of. That's not likely to be the case. So you will need engineering that goes with that, and you'll need to determine what you're trying to power. Now, large it's going to take a large system, in my experience, to power all of your house needs a very large system or multiple. So I'm not thinking that's really practical for you in the part of the country that you're in, but it may be for a few small items. You may say, hey, I'd just like to power my air conditioning unit all by itself or my heating system or a motor. And that's probably something that's practical for you, but it's not going to be a massive energy savings. So I want you to take that into consideration. The other thing you do need to know, and we're continuing to see this trend, so if you want to wait a little longer, that the cost per kilowatt hour from wind energy, just like solar energy, continues to come down year after year as the technology for these devices improve, the converters that we need to get the power from this particular device, in your case wind, back into the grid and to use it in our home, those costs continue to come down. And public utilities, yes, under federal law, are still required to buy back any excess. But in my book at this point, it's good if you want to work with it some, but don't think you're going to be completely independent and save a bundle of money right up front. We're getting there, but I don't think we're there yet, Alice. And it's also, when you talk to some of the folks who have jumped into this and jumped into these technologies at different stages, they turn around and they find out that two years later, the technology that they paid for, it's kind of like big screen TVs and computers. Wow, you got all of that and I paid all of this? Yeah, you got Double or three times as much for 10% of what I paid. The other thing with wind that people have to be careful of, not unlike solar, is wind, especially if the units are fairly large, may be uh, an issue for your local government in terms of where you can put them or if you can put them, unlike solar panels, which are more of a a problem for your homeowners association rather than local government. Yeah, your neighbors may have some issues. Yeah. So, Alice, you got some things to think about. Take care. We've got to take a break. We'll continue with more. You can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He takes your calls at any time at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. 
also takes your emails through his website, KenTheContractor.com. And Ken goes through those emails, answers them along with our mailbag editor, Aaron Yoder, and you'll find those answers all posted on the website, KenTheContractor.com. But Ken also brings quite a few of those, particularly some of the more interesting ones that are applicable to our entire radio audience, and brings them to the air. And we kind of kick them around right here on the radio. And Ken, we've got a couple of those. Now, this one comes to us from Gene in Fleetwood, Pennsylvania. And Gene has an entire project ahead of him. One reason I wanted to bring this to air, because he's doing his homework. He's hopefully listened to the show enough that he knows you do a little bit of studying, a little bit of homework, you check out products, you check out means and methods before you get started, and your project will go much better for you. He says, I have a project to remodel a basement for my brother-in-law. That makes it even worse, Gene, because this is a relative said, I want to make sure I do not have any mold problems when I'm done and I don't have any basement moisture issues. Said, right now, there are no signs of water leaking into the basement, but I've been told it's good to line the walls and the floor with a sheet of plastic. So I'm guessing by this email that the floor has to be poured in this basement also. He said, I plan to use two-inch thick insulation board on both the floor and the walls. I've also read that it's good to use green board drywall in place of standard drywall. Any comments, or am I going in the right direction? Well, Gene, you're clearly going in the right direction. I am going to make a few comments for you for the benefit of you and for our other listeners. As I said, I make an assumption that you're having to pour the floor. This is an unfinished basement where you have walls only and perhaps just a stone floor in place. I would want you and anyone else to make some observations before you start construction, and that is either from the people that have lived there, get their comments, or you do this yourself, but Walk through this basement area after a heavy rain. And just because you don't see moisture, literally, or water pouring through the walls, I want you to be sure there's no signs of dampness in any form. I also want to be sure that there's no water standing in any corner within the stone or around the foundation or the wall itself before this floor is poured. That could be some indication to you that the footing drain is not working properly because there should be no water visible. Foundation drain should be lower than the footer, so at least at the top of your footer, you should not have any water within that basement space. The other thing that I want you to look at is not only to see if there's just a slight discoloration in the block or concrete that makes up the foundation walls. If there is, then that may be a sign of dampness, not necessarily moisture, wholesale moisture pouring through the wall, but just dampness that's working its way through, that could be an issue as far as mold goes later on. But while you have a chance, observe these areas. The other thing that you can do is if you see something that's suspect, take a piece of plastic and use the ever-infamous duct tape. This is a case where short-term works great, and tape it to the wall, leave it overnight, and see if condensation forms on the inside of that plastic. If it does, that tells you, again, it's not just wholesale moisture, but a small amount that's getting through that you might want to deal with at the outside. Again, be sure footing drains are working, downspouts are turned away from the house, things that will help you before you conceal these items that allow you to tell the rest of the story. Now, to deal with the construction itself, you're on the right track. If you're going to be pouring a floor in here, Clearly, and for all of you, you want to have a vapor barrier under the bottom of that floor, a minimum of six mil, and you're going to find that at your lumber yards, your most hardware stores, that's a very heavy plastic. It's not a painter's plastic, which is quite light, but six mil or heavier is going to be very thick, and you want to overlap this plastic. You want to be sure by several inches, not just butt the joints together. In some cases, you may want to have as much as a foot or more, and it's always wise even to tape these if you have the opportunity. So during construction, it's not being displaced, and you don't have an area where water can get in. 
then you will uh, want to be sure that once that vapor barrier is in place, uh, that you move on to the walls. And I'm not going through the whole process of pouring floor and put the insulation board in and so forth. But you want to move to the wall area. Now, on the wall, you're going to end up putting furring strips over the existing foundation wall itself. Come back, it sounds like, with two-inch insulation board between your furring strips. Then you want to put a piece of plastic over that before you put your sheetrock up. I do support the use of green board anytime, or in some cases, it's a blue board. But it's a moisture-resistant drywall, and you want to install that, not sitting tight to the floor. Hold it up an inch or more so that if there's ever any water on the floor, the drywall's not soaking it up but be sure that you've got the plastic behind that. You're going in the right direction, but first, be sure you don't have moisture issues by checking some of the things out that I caution you about before you even get started with your construction activity. Get another email now from the website. Indeed. This one comes to us from Sherry in Fairfax, Virginia. And as I've read through this, this is not an uncommon question. Many of you out there have what's called bonus rooms over your garage. And in today's world, you're finding that space that you paid for many years ago when you bought the house, you're starting to use. You're building it out, or perhaps it's built out, and you're really using it, only to discover one thing. The heating and cooling is inadequate, or maybe it never had any installed in the first place. So Sherry is writing about that. She says, I have a bonus room over my garage. It's used primarily as a guest room. The air conditioning for the house does not adequately take care of that room. I'd like to add a supplemental air conditioning unit for that area that could cut down or that I could use only when needed. And I need only air conditioning. She says the heat is fine in the wintertime, so she needs some supplemental cooling. Said I'd like to have something that's permanent. Now she goes on to say, I have seen wall units in hotels, nursing homes, etc., and assume that what I want is available, but I'm not sure what my options are or what to even ask for. I'd appreciate your thoughts and point me in the right direction. The hotel-style heating and cooling units that all of us are familiar with, we don't think about using those in our homes. And they're made for residential use as well, meaning you don't want to have the window, the compressor hanging outside where everybody says, ah, you've got a window unit stuck in there. Yet you want something that's a little stylish, and you don't want it to take up all of your floor space inside, and you want it quiet. All of us have traveled and we've stayed in different types of hotels that have these through-wall units. And they are typically called a PTAC, P-T-A-C unit. That's how they're known in the industry. And they serve the purposes of smaller spaces. So for a bonus room, in your case, 12 by 18, this would work extremely well. And that's my recommendation to you. It would, means you need a hole in the wall, but it will not take up your window space, which you don't want to lose. You only have one window. So you will need to hire a contractor, at least a carpenter. You will need to check with your building department to see if there are any permits required because you're going to be cutting a hole in the structure. These units typically do not take up more than two stud cavities. They may be 32 inches. Possibly you need to go a little bit wider depending on the type unit you purchase, in which case you're modifying the structure. You may or may not be in a bearing wall. If it's in the end of a truss, it's probably not a bearing wall. But, again, you need a licensed contractor to check this out. So that's one step. Then investigate the PTAC units that are available, and I'm going to give you uh, some contact information in just a moment, and look at the room size, determine what the needs are. But purchase this unit, have your contractor create the hole for it. Units also operate on 110 volts, so you don't. they can't operate on 220, but you want to make a purchase for 110 because also in this document, I didn't read this, she has only 110 power available. It'll plug into a wall outlet as long as the circuit is sized correctly. 
and it will save you an electrical charge from your uh, local electrician. So it's not difficult to do, clean and simple, quiet, minimize the floor space that's taken up, preserve the window opening that you have. Now, some of the companies, and there are several out there, Sherry, we do appreciate your email. And don't forget, you can forward your emails to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. Every week at this time, Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, is right here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. For Ken Patterson, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have questions about your home, inside or out? KenTheContractor.com is all you need to know. I'm Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Visit KenTheContractor.com for answers to plumbing, fencing, electrical, roofing, painting, heating, fireplaces, decks, and much more. Submit your questions or call anytime. Remember, KenTheContractor.com, where folks come for professional answers. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.